Today's Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 33:14 to 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior, the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. It's certainly appropriate to celebrate moms uh, because we all have one, something common among all of us, and uh, it's right to thank them and celebrate them. But like any other special day, uh, Mother's Day can be a mix of celebration and sadness because some of you would like to be mothers and can't. Some of you have um, lost children uh, through death or miscarriage. Some of you might be estranged from your child, or uh, they may feel grief being estranged from you. And so I just want to encourage you that God is with you and celebrates you in this time of celebrating moms and also receives your tears and receives your grief. So let's pray now to him as we consider this text. Father, would you meet us now as we settle ourselves before you? Help us to believe that none of us are here by accident, that just as you spoke through Jeremiah, you long to speak to us now. Enable us to hear what you have to say, speak into our apathy, speak into our boredom, Speak into our confusion. Speak into our sadness. Help us if we are skeptical to see through the things that we find difficult about this passage and perhaps about the church as it exists so that we can truly see Jesus. And if we believe for a long time and that this passage or the ideas that it contains have become far too tepid in its familiarity, let it be made new for us in the way that you promised to make all things new. Move toward us, Father, in renewing and in restorative love, and we pray in the one who embodied that love for us, your son Jesus. Amen. I told you a month or so ago that I had recently been reading the Brothers Karamazov again, For the third time, isn't that impressive? And I said this time I was going to actually finish it. I had tried it two different times and had gotten to about a page page 100, 100, and uh, then gave it up. And then five years later, tried it again. Five years later, two months ago, decided to start reading it again because just about every pastor I know has read at least some of Dostoevsky, particularly the brothers' book. And I want to belong. Pastors want to belong. Pastors need to belong just like anyone else. In fact, probably more so than anyone else, pastors have that longing to belong. But that's a different sermon. I don't want to digress too far into confession. But 
Brothers is a great book, not just to mine for quotes and illustrations, which I've done for a decade or more without having read it. But I've lived inside of Dostoevsky's head for the last couple of months, and I'm not sure this morning if the using brothers is serving the text or vice versa. But I do think that Jeremiah would love Brothers Karamazov because Dostoevsky is asking, is there a hope that is viable in the world as it is, in the world that we actually inhabit? And answering this is Jeremiah's prophetic pastoral concern. He speaks God into a very traumatic situation, a situation of loss and religious disillusionment and an experience of violence. And he says that belief is possible in a world that's encroached upon by evil, and that despite their experience of suffering, that God is moving history to a finale of grace that involves not only their physical return to the promised land, but a final, larger redemption of the entire world from the absurdity of evil. And Brothers is partially a meditation, quite a long meditation as it were, on this in-between time where darkness and injustice and this suffering of innocence in a world happens in a world supposedly made by and controlled by and guided by a good God. And Dostoevsky invites the reader to consider whether there's any possible finale that could satisfactorily explain the existence of evil in the present world. And even though he's writing as a Christian, Brothers Karamazov contains some of the the best arguments against believing in God in all of literature. And it's similar to the Bible in that regard. One of the most famous episodes, probably the most famous, comes in book five, and it's the Grand Inquisitor chapter that then moves into what is called rebellion. And this is a a long extended conversation between Ivan, the second brother, and Alyosha, the first brother, the young brother, who is now studying as a novice in the monastery. And they're meeting in a tavern, and they have this super long conversation, and you're invited to ponder huge philosophical ideas, and as well as sort of practical ideas, like how do they keep talking so long in a tavern drinking beer and not going to the bathroom? I don't understand. That's where my simple mind went, was trying to figure that out. Grand Inquisitor is this parable, which we talked about a month or so ago, but then rebellion. And it's interesting that Dostoevsky calls it rebellion because it's clear that Ivan is speaking Dostoevsky's concerns, his objections, his doubts. He's putting his own questions in Ivan's mouth. And it's in this chapter that Dostoevsky outlines a deeply affective and a deeply effective challenge to the idea of a good and powerful God As Ivan relates these historical examples that Dostoevsky pulled from the newspapers of children suffering 
horrific deaths and even torture. And he basically says, how could this exist in this universe? It's senseless suffering. And the litany goes on and on, and it's very difficult to read. And Dostoevsky, it's interesting, if you read his journals later, and in the time that he was continuing to write, this was a serial type of book, he didn't know if he had fully countered Ivan's argument. He thought, perhaps, that people were going to be much more empathetic towards Ivan than the elder Zosimo, who is kind of the primary one that answers Ivan. But neither Dostoevsky nor Jeremiah are interested in a simplistic faith. What makes Ivan's complaint so powerful is that he doesn't argue as an atheist. See, this can't possibly exist. In fact, he believes that God will bring final harmony to the world, but he doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, I reject it. No future goodness can possibly justify the suffering of even one innocent child. For the love of man, I reject it, Ivan says. You see, it's a moral argument against the universe as it exists. And this sort of thing happens throughout the Bible, actually. It's not good propaganda. The Psalms cry out against injustice. And where do they lay the blame? They lay the blame at the feet of God. How could you stand idle when this is happening in the world? Job loses his family, loses his possessions, loses his health. And his conclusion is, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. There's not much we can do about it. Abraham Heschel says that God is an earthquake. And our dislikes and likes really have nothing to do, nothing determinative about his existence and how he wants to go about the world. Ecclesiastes, the writer Kohelet, looks around all of the world and experiences as much as he can, and he says, it's all meaningless. It's able. It's a vapor. And the prophets, like Jeremiah, seek to answer, why have faith when this is the world that we live in? They're experiencing God's apparent abandonment in exile. The barbarians are at the gate. The Babylonians are at the gate. Their known world, religious and otherwise, is collapsing. How can we possibly have faith in this environment? What the Bible never does, however, is it never justifies the present moral order in some mathematical way that if you weigh all of the evil and all of the good that will come in the next world, then obviously it's a just world. That's not what the Bible does. And the Bible never denigrates or diminishes our horror at atrocity or your experience of it personally. No, human tears have meaning. And they have dignity because of Jesus' tears. 
When Jeremiah says here, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. He's not saying keep the faith because heaven will be far better than the bad is terrible. He's not revealing this sort of hidden logic that blunts prematurely the problem of evil. No, I will make, and this is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, I will make a righteous branch sprout out from David's line. He will do what is right and just. Where? In the land. He will do what is right and just here. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be here. And here is where God's holy rebellion will begin. What the Bible recognizes is that two contradictory worlds exist in the same place and in the same time. And the one world of death and aggression and sorrow and greed and suffering Well, it has an apparent sovereignty. It seems to be reality. But yet, in that very same geography, there's a new world that is presently shadowed, but is undermining the old one from within. The Apostle Peter, reflecting on this, says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness, that is God's justice, God's goodness, dwells fully. Do you see, the problem of evil is not answered by you being transported from one world to another. Things are bad now, but just you wait. But instead, God is actively transforming the old world of death and dying with beauty and truth and goodness bubbling up from within the old world. Suffering, evil, sorrow is a symptom of a sick world that we still inhabit. It's a symptom of dying a very slow death like someone with a virus that is perfectly healthy, but then the virus takes over and they begin to get sick and show signs of dying until they ultimately collapse. The old world, the Bible is telling us, Jeremiah is telling us, is infected with a virus. It's infected with the nevertheless of God that we've been talking about throughout our study. And this, friends, does not diminish suffering. Pain is something that hurts, but not something that means. Pain is something that is real, and it hurts, but it is not something with ultimate meaning or that can ultimately dictate the course of the world. It's as Augustine said, it's a privation. It's the absence of good. It's the absence of what God wants to stand in His world. And to any supposed 
answer to the problem of evil, there is, of course, mystery. We don't yet know why, for example, God has chosen to do it this way, why it has taken so long, as we sang in the song. When will you come to make all things new? We don't know the answers to specifics like timing. We don't know whether this is the best of all possible worlds. But the ambiguity doesn't eliminate practicality. It doesn't mean that how we answer the problem of evil is important to how we live our daily lives. Remember, Jeremiah is not a philosophical treatise, but it's a pastoral word. It's a sermon, if you will. Here is how you continue to move forward. Here's how you find God in the midst of your world falling apart. Here's how you find hope in the midst of societal and spiritual collapse. And these promises that Jeremiah gives to others, they give him a holy unrest. During the civil rights movement, much to our shame as Christians and as a church that existed then, the Bible was used to justify segregation, just as it was used a hundred years previous to justify slavery. But there are also Christians like Martin Luther King, like Rosa Parks, like John Lewis and Fred Shuttlesworth, who led a costly crusade against inequality and against racism and against system, systemic injustice, not in spite of, but because they knew their Bibles, because of their Christian faith. The Bible, and particularly prophets for Martin Luther King, gave him a holy unrest that was not satisfied with the world as it is. It gave him a holy hostility to evil. Their answer, friends, about the problem of evil was not simply to sit and ponder. Their answer to the problem of evil was to do something about it in God's name and using His not only permission but His calling to embody God's holy hatred for injustice in the present world because they knew that it would cease in the world to come and that was already present. Martin Luther King consistently appealed to the Jewish expectations of a Messiah. And he quoted Old Testament prophets, often Isaiah, but also Amos and Jeremiah, who, like Jeremiah in our passage, were envisioning a coming world that mobilized holy unrest in the present world. That anticipation of the Messiah meant that Martin Luther King could say with conviction that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It meant he could say that not as an empty platitude, but something that motivated and directed his daily life, that he was able to say, I may not get to the promised land, I may not see it with you, but I know that we will get there. 
He knew that the arc of justice, the arc of history is bending toward justice. He believed that that righteous branch that would spring up from the Davidic line was in fact Jesus, the coming Messiah. You see, prophets give words that promise the end of something that seems to be wholly absolute, unchangeable, immutable. And they envision and they begin what is impossible to believe and to imagine without those words. They promise the end of something that seems to be absolute. And they begin to do something, not just talk about it. They begin to do something that seems to be impossible. And they do so, Jeremiah does so, by speaking God into situations where he doesn't seem to be present. And for them, that was the exile. That was captivity that was coming and would probably exist for many decades. What is it for you? What is it in your life that you have a hard time imagining God's presence in? Where does, God, where does Jeremiah speak God into your life? Where does he need to speak it into your life right now? As you sit here and as you encounter this new week, where could this promise take root? Even if you're able to just believe a, a portion of it. I hope that it's coming. I don't know. I believe it's coming. I'm not certain. Where could that begin to take root in your life and begin to change what you believe to be absolutely settled in your life, unchangeable, immutable, and begin to open up your imagination for something that could be some form of what we would call resurrection, of the beginning of all things being made new. Jeremiah says, in those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Those words are given by Jeremiah in a context of opposition. He's an old man now and has experienced hostility from the kings that he is called to speak to and from the nation of Israel, and he writes out of prison, and he has hope. He speaks these words when Israel is teetering on the edge of extinction with many years coming of tremendous suffering and shame. Yet it's precisely in this context that this message of restoration makes sense. In fact, it's only in those contexts that Christian hope can be fully understood. Christianity, after all, is a religion of salvation, of rescue, of redemption. And that salvation, while not making sense of every atrocity and pain in a logical way, it is founded upon God's nevertheless, that He friends, is in holy rebellion against the brokenness of the present world and the brokenness in your life and everything that is threatening and encroaching upon your personal life that leads you away from Him. He longs to break the yoke. He longs to crush that evil intrusion in your life, even if it's 
generating from your own will, as it often does. And so if Martin Luther King, along with the rest of the Christian church, is right, that Jesus is God incarnate, then He too comes in holy rebellion. He rebels against everything that has undermined the goodness of His creation and that has opposed and has harmed those He loves, you and me. Jesus' death on the cross was in fact a subversion of death in a way that no one would have foreseen and is even hard to contemplate now. But in His death, in His cross, His unlimited, immutable love sweeps us up into a counter-reality. You see, it sweeps us out of the old world and into the new that's still inhabiting that same space for the time being. His love on the cross sweeps you into the subversion of death. And it's then in His resurrection that we celebrated on Easter. He draws us not only into a counter-reality, but into a counter-insurgency, an insurgency against death and dying wherever it exists. And so Easter, as we conclude, Easter, as David Bentley Hart wrote, should make us all rebels, should make us rebels of us all. Hart is an Eastern Orthodox philosopher, theologian, and he wrote the small book, The Doors of the Sea, in the aftermath of the 2004 Indian tsunamis. And it's one of the most powerful, potent uh, meditations on the problem of evil and suffering. And he interacts significantly with Dostoevsky. And Hart, and I think Jeremiah, and I think Dostoevsky as well, Hart is not happy with the deterministic outlook that is found in some Calvinist perspectives that attributes a mechanical causation to all things, including pain and suffering. He's not happy with that explanation, nor is he happy with the sort of glib optimism that we see in much of Christianity that sees Jesus' future coming as a, uh, a simplistic rationalization of evil. And he says this in conclusion. This is the very last part of his book, and I wanted to leave this with you. He says, Now we are able to rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but we are saved through grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands simply into one great synthesis, but He will judge much of history false and damnable. That He will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that, rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering 
in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Christian belief is that today we celebrate the ascension, that Jesus ascended to the throne, having deposited his work that began that counter-reality, began that counter-insurgency, and that he reigns and will one day come again. And so there is a reason to have hope in your life, that the things that are fallen and broken can be restored. Let's pray. Father God, we find this, even if we are here this morning as believers committed to this story, we find it hard to believe. Jesus, would you come and make all things new? We want to ask, why do you tarry and why do you continue to allow things like these atrocities that we witness each and every day on the news to continue to happen? But Father, as we contemplate that, let it not lead us into a place of apathy, but into a place of counterinsurgency. Would you energize this church to open our eyes to the neighborhood just outside these doors and ask, what is broken? What has fallen? What is unredeemed? Who is in pain? So that we can carry your gospel as well as tangible things to Lift those people up. And would you do that in our own lives? For we are not capable to help anyone. We need help. And would you begin to restore our hope? And would you begin to push against all of those places in our lives that are twisted and broken? And would you unwind them? And would you heal them? And would you let us walk towards you as you've walked towards us in the gospel? And we pray, Jesus. In your name, amen.